This podcast is dedicated to Lou Aaron. Hello, this is Christopher Bandini, and I'm one of the hosts of New Books and Psychoanalysis podcast. And today we're here with Adrian Harris and Victoria Demos, and we're going to talk about the book, The Collected Papers of Emanuel Ghent, Heart Melts Forward, and that's on Rutledge 2018. And, um, Victoria Demos is a supervisor at the Institute for Contemporary Psychotherapy in New York, and Adrian Harris is a clinical associate professor of psychology and clinical consultant on the postdoctoral program in psychotherapy and psychoanalysis at New York University. So I want to uh, welcome the both of you today to uh, New Books in Psychoanalysis. Thank you. Thank you. For those who are unfamiliar with him, who is Manny Gent? I think that in some ways, um, Victoria and I wrote that wrote this, not wrote this book, but collected this papers and commentaries on Manny's work precisely because um, that's a question that still a new generation has. Um, he doesn't have the reputation in relational psychoanalysis that he really should. And I think this book is a project in the direction of making him familiar to a new generation of relational analysts. Because he was really there at the very beginning. He has a very unique role. Um, and I think our, our project is absolutely in the service of making that a, a question we don't need to ask again, that this is, this is somebody, you know, who we should know as well as we know Phil Bromberg and Lou Aaron and just the whole, the whole group. But what leads you to think that, or what leads you to say that that's not Virginia, the... Do you, do you want to say anything? Yeah. Sorry. Mm-hmm. You know, I started discussing the project initially and, and before we did a continuing ed uh, program on this workshop at the Toronto IARC a few years ago, we were looking at the state of the papers as being in sort of the 80s, but yet the development of his ideas was really starting in the 70s, although they were published much later, most of them in the 90s. But I think what you find is that he was so far and away ahead of his time in bringing up early ideas of relational theory. And so I think as of him both as a founder of IARP and the relational track, a co-founder of the relational track at Postdoc, that these ideas that he began, that he was both working with in his analysis, with patients, his own patients that he was teaching at Postdoc and that he was thinking about and that were gestating, even though he might not have been publishing them yet, were precursors and developed along with many ideas that we now consider to be standard relational, you know, theory and practice. As I was asking, can you place him in the context? When did he write and maybe in in relationship to some of the other people that you mentioned? Manny was in the very first group of people that Steve Mitchell gathered to form psychoanalytic dialogues, which was formed in the towards the end of the of the nineteen eighties. And I think its first issue was 1991. So Manny was in the first group, and that was where Steve was really constructing a kind of relational movement of people teaching at different institutes, writing, and and very much focused on the creation and publication of psychoanalytic dialogues, which was the sort of heart of the um, Steve moving from the, the books he had been writing with Jay Greenberg into really wanting there to be a movement with teaching, with institutes, with journals, uh, with projects of various kinds. So Manny was there, but he had been trained at White. Um, he came from Montreal in the 1970s. Um, he was trained at White, and he um, he was interested in a lot of the things then that he continued to be interested in, 
um, like um, sort of neuro, what we would now call neuroscience. Um, uh, he was interested in spirituality. He was um, he had a whole formation um, at Bell Labs and in computer you know, computers before there were computers. Um, so he was very interested in as as people were at William Allenson White in. Um, the whole complexity of interactions in psychoanalysis. So he fit right into Steve Mitchell's project to develop a relational perspective. Um, so he was really there from the very beginning. He had moved from white to postdoc. He was a very beloved teacher and supervisor. He was my supervisor at, uh, at postdoc. He trained people like Jessica Benjamin and Uriel Dimon. So he was there both training people and developing the structures of relational psychoanalysis very much alongside Mitchell. And I think one interesting thing is that Steve had people he mentored who were older than him. Both Phil Bromberg and Manny Gant come from a different generation. But I think they were very inspired by Steve. And so there's a funny kind of timeline (laughs) of when they do what and... um, some ways that they in, they were influenced by this much younger person who was a different generation. Victoria? No, I mean, I think, that, you know, what's so significant here is what uh, Adrian is discussing, which is that he came out of this tradition at White, but he was also, his uh, first analyst was Clara Thompson, which is important because she was analyzed by Ferenzi, and many of Manny's later ideas of interaction and bidirectionality which predated, you know, many of other ideas of intersubjectivity come out of that tradition of Ferenzi, which we are now sort of so um, immersed in now, and that Adrian has been particularly active in, um, you know, disseminating ideas and, and current evolutions of ideas of Ferenzi, but that Manny really truly came out of that tradition in a way that was kind of bringing that to life at the time. That's what I found uh, surprising. I did not know that he was analyzed by Clara Thompson. So there's really this direct line back to Ferenczi. It's really, really quite remarkable. Yeah. Um, and I was also thinking of that of the people he supervised. That first, I guess, the first class at NYU postdoc was it had so many remarkable people in it. Well, postdoc had been going since the 1960s. So when you say the first. I'm sorry, the first relational um, class, I suppose. Was that, is that correct? Actually, they predate the relational. Um, when when Jessica and Muriel and Lou Aaron and I were all students at postdoc, there was not yet a relational track. So uh, we were in the sort of more interpersonal group. The students never had to choose a track. It was the faculty that did. But um, sometime in the sort of mid to late 80s, Steve Mitchell comes to postdoc, and he and Manny and Bernie Friedland and Phil Bromberg and Jim Fasagi are all creating the relational track. But actually, people like Jessica and Muriel and I were the teachers. We graduated, and very quickly, we became some of the early teachers when there was a relational track. So, you know, these structures kind of evolved slowly, but there really wasn't a relational track until at the end of the 80s. Um, and uh, and Manny, again, was was very influential there, but he had been teaching for 20 years at Postdoc. We can move on to speaking about some of the articles that, that are in the book and maybe even mm-hmm. talk about the structure of the book a little bit and how you got to that, yeah. and then we can speak about the specific articles. Sure. Well, I, you know, I think 
idea was to have to compile uh, all of his main uh, papers, as well the main five papers, as well as two early writings that uh, Adrian and I found. And Adrian maybe can speak to those. I think I'd like to speak to those early articles, and then to have um, current people like Tony Bass, uh, Jessica Benjamin, Muriel, at the time uh, speak to and comment on. You know, looking back at these articles and sort of how are they both interesting historically, but also how are they relevant currently and, and how do they influence our work currently. And so that was an idea that we had, but also the, the idea that these would be accessible to people as a collection and perhaps used for teaching and all of his writings being available in one place. So that was sort of an initial idea. I'm thinking as I'm, so, uh, I'm sitting with the book in front of me and looking at the, the particularly the articles that we were that we were chosen that we were choosing and and really making very central to the book. Obviously, the masochism, submission, and surrender, which was a very influential article in which he really talked. I think the other link to Ferenczi is that in this work. And in other papers, we see the centrality of trauma in his thinking. Um, that's a draw from Ferenczi. But looking at a really subtle distinction between submission and surrender, and that one could feel very vulnerable, but it didn't need to be a sort of masochistic submission. In fact, there was an experience that he talked about, and you can hear his Buddhism, his spirituality, his creativity as a, as a musician, even, in this idea of the possibility of surrender as a kind of opening to the other person. And that article was very important for people like Jessica Benjamin, working on doer and done to, on the whole question of recognition and witnessing. And so I think that and these were not the kind of writings that were really being done very much at the time, this, that kind of attention to a, a very powerful process between people in, in treatment. They tended to be this sort of much more orderly idea of transference and counter-transference, and the analyst is the one who knows. I think Manny was a very central figure in pushing the relational group into a, a much more subtle idea of interaction and process. I think also the other paper that, that sort of we might just think about a little and, uh, is, is the paper on development, wish, need, and drive. Mm -hmm. And that was, for me, a very important paper in terms of dynamic systems theory. And Manny was very interested in theory. He's a really unusual mix of an interest in practice, in creativity, in making music and composing, in the spiritual life, but very interested in development and biology and neuroscience. And he brought those developmental interests to the relational group, which actually Mitchell wouldn't necessarily have had such a strong feeling about because the, the white and the interpersonal tradition wasn't always so interested in regression and development um, as Manny really became. I think it was one of his reasons to draw towards postdoc in his career that that he saw a very important place for development. Victoria? Yeah, I mean, I think my sense uh, is the same, that Manny had a very strong interest in what I would call sort of using Christopher Bolas's idea of regression to ordinary dependence. So a slight modification of Winnicott's original idea of regression to sort of total, de total dependence or total regression but that he used, he 
you know, we might also talk a bit about his paper, Credo, which is very important. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think in that paper, you know, he talked about this idea of, um, which he didn't use at the time, the, uh, the term of surrender yet, but this idea of the patient opening up in order to revisit painful experiences in early life and then to be able to integrate them. So another very important concept that he starts to talk about before people were really talking about this as a theory was this whole idea of self-state, which is, you know, crucial to the way that I think we came to understand the development of relational theory. And this is before Bromberg? Sorry, go ahead. Uh, this is before Bromberg, uh, his or at it, the same it's time. It's actually a very, very much the same time. A sort of interaction. Bromberg is very, you know, comes to be talking about these multiple self states in terms of dissociation. I think that Manny uh, didn't use a word like dissociation, but he thought of shifting states and multiple self states, and in a very dynamic way. You know, you can see the place where spirituality and Buddhism and, and sort of creativity plays in the kind of comfort with regression, even if not exactly using that word. Right. And as Adrian speaks about this idea of his concept of development, that he very much integrated ideas of attachment theory, regulation of affect, uh, substates into his work, and also attention to deep affect in the mm-hmm. service of getting away from dissociation, although... It's true, Bromberg, Bromberg speaks about dissociation, many does not use that word as much, but in a sense, that's what he's writing about in this integration of self-states idea. It's, it's quite remarkable when you're reading the articles of, I guess, a sense of, of yes, being along with the, with the cohort that we're talking about, but also um, a certain prescience to it, and also um, that same sense of being able to integrate wide-ranging theories, much the way Steve Mitchell was able to do so, or yeah. people like Adam Phillips, that he was he was really able to kind of yeah. put it all together, and and you you wonder how he was able to do. It. He had such wide ranging interests. I, I think he was just always that kind of person who who just followed quite interesting, very somewhat idiosyncratic um, I, ideas. He had a lot of independence of mind, um, and I think. Um, the fact is that he had this world at Bell Labs. He was working in sort of compute, what were the sort of origins of computer science. He was a composer. He, he made electronic music. He, he was, you know, had a spiritual practice. This was somebody who actually moved through very different worlds and didn't see any reason not to think of them in some intersection. Uh, and I just think this was, this was the quality of his but a whole intellectual um, sort of formation. He, he came from Montreal. You know, they're very interesting. There are three friends who come from Montreal in the 70s, David Schechter, Manny Gent, and Hai Shatton. Mm. And um, David Schechter dies of suicides. And in a sense, um, I would say David Schechter is uh, Manny's ghost and kind of haunts. The, some of his writing in a very subtle way, and he was really somebody he loved very deeply and missed, and who I don't know very much about Schechter, but um, Hai Shatton was another very interesting and not well enough remembered figure, 
same generation as Manny. He is the guy who puts um, PTSD into the DSM, and he did a great deal of work with Robert J. Lifton on um, the war and Vietnam vets and rap groups. And I think that these guys, Shatton, Schechter, Gant, they, they came from this very sort of independent, interesting intellectual world of medical school world, also of Montreal, and they came to New York, and they they just brought a very, they were both political, and they had sort of social and progressive views. They were, they were, they were a really interesting mix, and, and Manny adds the creativity uh, and inventiveness uh, to that mixture. Victoria, if you have anything to add? Um, not, not on that subject. I think that, mm-hmm. I think that speaks to his you know, early ideas, and I think, you know, I agree with Adrian that he was such a creative individual that he was able to integrate all these parts of himself, in a sense, that even when he spent all those years commuting out to Bell Labs in New Jersey, that he would come back in the evening about 6 o'clock or 7 o'clock and start seeing his analytic patients till 10 or 11 or 12, and then he would go back to composing music, so there was this way that he integrated all these cells of himself quite seamlessly. Yeah, I was wondering about that. I was, sleep. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I was, I was wondering about how, um, exactly. uh, you know, did he leave, he, that he was overlapping. He wasn't, he didn't leave one abruptly and go to the next. He was kind of doing, doing it all, all together. Yeah. Oh, it's true, yeah. although I think at the time that he was doing the music, that was more the emphasis at Bell Lab. He was one of the inventors really of computerized composition of music and computerized music. Yet at the same time, he kept his practice, um, but that that was sort of his concentration. And then when he eventually left that, then he devoted himself back to psychoanalysis, which I believe, as Andrew, Adrian and I have discussed, is another reason why there aren't more publications, that there was such a period in his life that he was devoted to composing, that that you know, was his emphasis during those years. When I was researching this interview, I came across uh, some great stuff on YouTube of um, filmed, um, I guess, dances to his music compositions and stuff. And maybe we'll link to those if we can, because um, I think they are they are informative as to what type of person he was and how he worked. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, I mean, a couple of ideas I think that he, you know, was was trying to elucidate or. I guess he was moving from the, inter- the interpersonal, the interpersonal work of the '60s. When you mentioned David Schechter, I believe he's in the. There's an article in the Wittenberg book, and David Schechter was working with developmental ideas in yeah, interpersonal analysis. You know, at, at mid '60s, late or mm-hmm. '70s, something like that. Mm-hmm. And, and that I didn't realize that there was that connection. But yeah. this idea, this idea of kind of reintegrating or, or, or reconsidering the intrapsychic or developmental ideas in interpersonal psychoanalysis, which, like I think you mentioned earlier, weren't really emphasized. I think that the, the that it's tr- really true of both the relational group and the interpersonal group, that the, there are these interesting moves kind of to and fro, that there's a kind of focus on action, a focus on interaction, and then a sort of, well, we don't want to lose the unconscious, and how do we have both, and how do we actually really think about how both transactions and internal worlds um, you know, have to be kept in mind and intention. And I, I think Manny was very devoted to that kind of complexity. 
Yes, and I think in Credo, he talks about, you know, he uses ideas from Sullivan of participant interaction and Kohat's ideas, which were, you know, very much in ascent and prominence at the time that he was writing, of empathy and ideas of fragmentation, self-fragmentation, dysregulation, and he integrates all of those into his ideas of interaction. Yeah, so it's not as if he, there's a departure, but rather more sort of an integration of all of these ideas in his work. Yes, you do hear him, especially in Credo, being able to go back and forth. And um, and he stays quite with, I think he stays with of people like Sullivan and, and, yet, and yet elaborates and builds on them. Yeah. Yes, yes. Uh, also about, um, I guess the other important concept I was thinking about when I was reading it was where he stands with drive. And I know, you know, Mitchell had a certain viewpoint, but that this was very important, especially in that wishes, needs, and drives article, um, and starting to move away from the idea of drives in the, in the classical sense. So I was wondering if you could speak to that mm-hmm. somewhat. That it's not a drive um, theory in that old um, fashion sense. It's really, I think, nonlinear dynamics and the notion of dynamic systems and the, the notion that he takes from uh, Edelstein and various neuroscience people is really about experience as emergent rather than pre-programmed. And so it's a developmental theory that, to my way of thinking, is actually developmental. Things e- emerge. They evolve. They aren't all set up you know, and reset from the beginning and just, you know, um, play out. And I think that contemporary work like Laplanche is very much in the spirit of that kind of thinking where the whole notion of drive is being critiqued as too biological. And but one wants to have something like intensity and experience and power and potency, but it needs to be developmental and emergent rather than sort of just preset. So there can be plenty of constitutional phenomena in an infant uh, and at the beginning of life, and and that then becomes it, it evolves. It isn't just a given that doesn't have a developmental history. And I I, I very much credit Nanny with that perspective, which I consider very very crucial and certainly has been very influencing influential to me in thinking about gender. Yeah, he um he actually mentions you. At some point, about the book at the time that you were, <laughs> you mentioned gender and uh, okay, good. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now we were we were sort of close and friendly, and um, we lived downtown in New York, and very close to each other. And um, he was a very, very wonderful person in my life. Just like you were saying, influenced so many people. At that point, yeah. by being this kind of downtown New York guy, uh, yeah. you know, I guess in some of the reminiscences that are also included in the book, that kind of comes across as well, that he was really this West Village uh, um, fixture in a way. Yeah, yeah, sure, for sure. Um, another key idea, I think Adam Phillips brought this out, it was um, paradox and process in that article and, um, mm-hmm. and, and how it relates to kind of, you know, it's a dialectic and kind of, I guess, being able to hold binary opposite positions, which, you know, now we, we think about quite a bit, but um, I, I can imagine it was pretty groundbreaking at the time. I, I definitely think so, and I, I'm right now on the IR colloquium, we're doing a long discussion of Robert Grossmart, um, a chapter uh, that's actually a chapter from the book, but it was in dialogues on uh, the unobtrusive relational analyst, and he talks about you know, accompanying, companioning, and he's trying to talk about a certain complexity in the analyst's 
attunement to the patient. And it has a lot of Manny's paradox and process ideas sort of embedded in it where there is both very intricate connection and places of difference, gaps, spaces. And I, I think I, I, I think Manny's real ability to sit with com- complexity and conflict is a has had a very powerful, subtle impact on a lot of a lot of contemporary work. Yeah, I think also in the Paradox and Process article, he also there's a thread through all of these articles, which is that his idea of need versus neediness, you know, this idea of what uh, motivates us as human beings, as patients in analysis, as analysts working uh, with patients, this idea of that we have certain needs that all revolve around connectedness with other people. And so I think he talks about the, the idea of using the analyst, object use, he talks about the idea of going on being, which is, you know, Winnicott's idea and, and similar to Robert Grossmark's idea about these ideas that we withdraw, that patients have defenses, and that part of this process of psychoanalysis is going through these painful experiences as they get relived in analysis uh, with patients and then how to have them integrate those experiences so they no longer need to live completely in this defensive manner. That's his idea of surrender, that they can give up those. And this idea of true need is very important, that he believes that there's genuine longings that come out but that are disguised or subverted for connectedness with others, human warmth, empathic responsiveness, recognition, as Jessica Benjamin later later talks about, trust. Uh, I think another interesting idea that comes out in these articles, particularly this one, is this idea that he uses words like belief and faith and creativity, uh, which I think also resonate in quite a number of Winnicott's articles. So it's not just about what we think in psychoanalysis, it's also what we believe and that it's also an experience in psychoanalysis, that it's not just, not simply a more intellectual exercise about insight, but that, you know, as is the very bedrock of relational theory and work, that it's an experience of something very deep between two people. You know, I'm I'm glad you're also bringing um, Winnicott so deeply into this um, into what you're discussing, because I think that um, it's absolutely true that the link to Clara Thompson links Manny to Ferenczi, but he was really the person at postdoc when I was a student who brought Winnicott um, into um, our classes and courses. And there, has, there are these funny kind of antipathies. Um, the interpersonalists were not so interested in development. They only they didn't want too many courses on Winnicott. And I, I think that that Manny is a very important purveyor of Winnicottian ideas into relational theory. Yeah, I think that that key contrast between need and neediness that he brings out, and and I, I'm glad you brought up the the colloquium, the IR colloquium, and this uh, this idea of what's acting out and what isn't, and, and what what's being communicated when the frame gets bent somewhat. You know, I think um, you know Manny was was definitely on that, and I think this idea about Winnicott and and where it fits into where it was then interpersonal work because this idea that it was you know too soft or that you were holding and not 
not yeah. acting enough. You know, it seems to still be around, <laughs> but it, oh, it's, yeah. it's an important <laughs> right. But it's, it's an important thing to at least be able to struggle with. So, wh- how do you think he was received when he was writing these articles? What was um, what was the reception like? Well, I, I I can't judge really outside my sort of immediate community, but you know, in the point where Steve is really from you know, the late 80s until his death, Um, you know, so it's about 12 or 13 years that Steve is really developing relational psychoanalysis and, you know, know, constructing and creating a movement. Manny was very central. Manny was, I, I think he gives the first opening speech at the first IARP, which actually occurred after Mitchell's death. So I, I think that um, it's always interesting who reads what when. Um, I think our, part of our wish for the book is that, that these articles are so interesting and seminal that they need to be read by the next generation. But I think Manny had uh, had enormous admiration from the sort of generation who were in the formation of relational, relational theories, sort of nationally and internationally, and that he was just seen as a very profound theorist. So it's how this continues to be something that we talk about, and I think that's part of the agenda of the book. How do they know to start reading in Lowell or to bring in, you know, the people that they bring they well, brought it, in? See, I think I know, for example, that that Mitchell um, was at Yale and he read Lowell, and he may have even studied with him uh, because Lowell was was at Yale and doing that's some true, teaching right. and certainly yes. in that world, and so. And I think the same would be true of Manny, that, that um, you know, they were drawn, they were big readers, they were, you know, they were sort of interested in, Manny was in, I think, in supervision with um, Bernie Friedland, who was, who was a big teacher of Fairbairn. So I think these weren't, they were sort of a little bit underground ideas, they weren't sort of prominent in the interpersonal world, but I think they were, they were, they were read and they were, a very interesting part of of Manny's teaching. So it, I, I think they, they they read and they were, you know, they're, they're, it's interesting that that it, that Clara Thompson was his analyst, and that you know sometimes there's a feeling that Ferenczi kind of a little bit goes missing in uh, in the interpersonal at William Allison White. I don't know that they, you know, now they would teach Ferenczi, but I'm not sure they did 20 years ago. Yeah, I, I would imagine they 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 didn't at that time. <laughs> Um, it wasn't until I guess you and Lou, you know, when you started the Frenzy Center and stuff, I think it really started to come back. Well, you know, I, I have all these. I don't exactly remember how Lou and I started that first, not the Ferenczi Center, which was like about only about a decade ago. But we did a conference on Ferenczi in the '90s, and I, Lou always believed I had done the work, and I always believed that he had. I think somehow Steve Mitchell told us to do this. But how Steve knew to, I actually don't know. And I, by the time we put the conference together and we were sitting and listening to all these Europeans, I felt like, you know, this is the most, how did I not know this? Where did this come from? It was just like, wow, there's a whole new world that I never even heard of. And I'd been one of the organizers of the conference, but honestly not from any absolute conviction that, that I knew anything about it. I was as much learning as anybody else in the audience. It was a really very bizarre experience. It's interesting with these emergent ideas because, you know, and now they just seem like they they just always existed, but they didn't. Well, they existed somewhere. And, and certainly there is a generation of people, Europeans primarily, who kept Ferenczi alive. M- Michael Ballant brought a lot of his work from Budapest. 
and his, including the clinical diaries, which Ballant was afraid to translate because he thought it was too radical. So people both held on to Ferenczi and to manuscripts and also, you know, weren't always free to to teach or to present that work. Um, so the clinical diaries weren't translated into English until 1988. So, you know, there's there are pockets of knowledge and things that are sort of float about, but, but it takes a while for a movement to kind of coalesce around. And, and definitely the conference that Lou and I did in, in the 80s, Oh, it's the 90s. I think it's 91 or 2, which leads to this book, The Legacy of Sander Ferenczi, was absolutely the first time we were, as a, as a, you know, as a relational group, taking on Ferenczi as a particular subject. You know, people like Martin Bergman used to teach Ferenczi, but in their private offices, not in institutes. Well, I guess the right the the story was it was the way he was treated by Ernest Jones kind of left him out of the history at some point, or he was kind of yeah, uh, persona sure. non grata. I think that's no. Uh, that's really uh, right. The other thing that I think happened at the White is that Clara Thompson had been in analysis with Ferenczi, and when he died, their analysis, the analysis was in a quite difficult situation, and she became very sort of antagonistic to the whole idea of regression, which was very central for Ferenczi, and certainly something that Manny, through reading Winnicott and other people, would be was interested in. But but the White. A group was not so um, taken with that and not so focused on development. So there were all kinds of reasons, not just Ernest Jones, although he plays a very destructive role, um, but problems also um, with some of the people who had been, like Sullivan and Clara Thompson, who had been influenced by Ferenczi early on, came to be wary of some of his ideas. Sullivan was was the person who recommended, of course, they were friends it recommended to Clara Thompson that to go over and get analyzed by forensic that's correct and uh, and said he right. was something like yeah, he's the only one over there it's worth uh, talking to or something yeah. Ferenczi was called the analyst of last resort so that if you had flunked out of every analysis in Europe you went to see Ferenczi in Budapest and hoped he could help you you know because he was doing very extreme things for sure my other favorite part of that story was that Clara Thompson brought her patients with her to Budapest was that about? Oh, she I brought didn't about, know that. Yeah, wow. it's it's in the it's it's in the um in her her collected papers that she brought about yeah. nine uh, about nine patients, I believe was the number. Followed wow. her Budapest, <laughs> can, and can you imagine wow. that happening now? It's a, just uh, that's kind of amazing too. <laughs> <laughs> no, right. <laughs> can you talk about some of the other uh, papers that you included? Uh, the, the the papers that were comments on on Manny's work and and on some of the later uh, things. I, I really loved the Adam Phillips inclusion. I loved uh, some of the reminiscences yeah. as well. You know, one of the things let's let's just focus on for a few minutes is is his credo, and this is something he he um, we have Tony talking about it, but Tony Bass. But credo was an idea he had, and he thought that people should write a credo at the beginning of their training, at the beginning of becoming an analyst, and to write a credo at the end. And when Victoria and I have taught a workshop on Manigant, we actually had people write credo. And when I've taught ethics courses, I often begin them by asking the students to write a credo. And the credo is very simply, what do you believe? What What is your belief as an analyst? And sometimes when I teach ethics, I have them write a credo at the beginning of the class, and then later, if it's a workshop, and two or three days later, if it's a long course, maybe six weeks later, I have them write another one. How have they changed? How does their credo change? Or has it? So 
this idea, and we've taken it up in dialogues, and various people have written, Martin Bergman, and uh, I think um, a bunch of other people have written written credos. Mostly, uh, I think Bromberg, mostly people kind of in the in, in sort of maturity and maybe even ending of their career. Um, Manny's credo was written at the end of his uh, life, but it, it's, a, it's in a sense, it's a very Manny-like project. Write what you believe. Right, what you really, what really matters to you as an analyst. What do you think? What, what do you want to be doing? What, is, how, what defines your work? So I think that's, you know, that's become a kind of model for a certain kind of writing. There's also um, uh, the, the paper that he wrote with Hi Shatton on group experience. And again, I think Shatton was Shatton took all that group work in the direction of work with veterans, but it was also something they were they were working on how you do group supervision. And as part of that paper, they were also using a lot of ideas of countertransference in a way that was, I think, quite new at the time. It was quite early to be yes. talking about. Yes. Yes. Yeah, I, I love the I love the thing that 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 Adam Phillips does. I think it's really just so rich. Yeah, his, his just his ability also to synthesize ideas and and um, mm-hmm. in in a way you really get a get a sense of the complexity of what Manny was writing because. Adam Phillips is able to explain them and say you have to kind of go back to these papers and and look at them again and again because they're they mm-hmm. they have so much in yeah. them. They produce. They 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 really um, they're very generative. Yeah, I was yeah. you know another one that just came to mind. The seed was like you know he was writing about hope and dread, and then of course Steve Mitchell's book was hope yeah. and dread, and you know yeah. these are just they're just seeds everywhere. It's kind of you know it's 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 just so far flung. Right, and he was as Jessica talks about in her intro to the masochism article that he was writing about masochism and statism, and and then. At the same time, Jessica was actually reading that as he was writing it, and then she was also working on her first book, and she then developed, you know, her ideas of the done-to and the doer, her idea yeah. of complementarity. Mm-hmm. So there are more seeds everywhere. It's very yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and what about um, your personal experiences? I know, Victoria, I know you, if you care to speak to any about what it was like to know him. Um, I like Adrian was initially also first in supervision uh, with Manny for two years as part of my formal training analysis. And, um, you know, I found him to be very rigorous as a supervisor. He was very grounded in uh, theory, but also in expanding the relationship with the patient. So I found that the interesting thing about Manny that I found as a supervisee was that I hadn't really read his articles in advance of the supervision, but as my experience of him as a supervisor, and then now that I've read and studied the articles more, and then hearing people talk about the way he taught and the way he was as a person, is that he was very integrated in the sense of he, the way that he wrote and the way that he practiced and the way that he taught was all in concert with each other. You know, he kind of lived, in a sense, uh, and talk, you know, the talk. He walked the walk. He did it all together. It wasn't as if he just wrote and then practiced very differently. You know, the, the writing wasn't just an intellectual exercise for him. I think it was, I think especially in Credo, you see, it was a deep exploration of what he actually thought about psychoanalysis. When I was, uh, you know, researching this, I also came across an article, which I guess, which isn't in the book, um, which was by his daughter, um, which was after he died by Natalie Ghent, called Flat Mountain. It was a little piece. Yeah. You know, it was just wonderful, you know, just to 
Yeah. You know, I can recount it if you if you don't remember. No, I do. I do. Yeah. Can you yeah. talk about it a little bit? Because I think it's important well, about how he kind of used creativity. Think think that this it's a very sort of loving homage to a parent, um, and that the parent sort of is capable of bringing richness into you know, the whole experience of you know, being with a child. And I I think you know his. Um, one of his daughters, Valerie, is a composer and a musician. So I think there's there's a way in which there was sort of continuity and generativity um, that was both personal and professional. Yeah, I, I think this this idea of kind of just being creative on the spot, of using creativity, you know, in a in a developmental so that you know what's going mm-hmm. what may influence the development of a, of a child in a certain way, and being able to kind of just think spontaneously. Spontaneously. So, yes. Yeah. Yeah. So so important for our work, and I think. And there, there was even another, I guess, another vignette with someone, I guess, who was in analysis with him, and uh, about going into the room and talking about the taping, which again just harkens back to the to what Grossmark was doing with uh, with his patient, and then the, yeah. that's being discussed in the colloquium about what it means to to kind of take these extra steps. Yeah, I think it, it was about the whole experience. There was um, an Israeli analyst that actually described Manny as providing a quote kind of sound bath through the use of his uh, very deeply resonant voice, and that he used his voice to provide this kind of deep affective resonance within the consulting room. So there was a a kind of, uh, you know, that from the moment that one entered the consulting room, everything that happened there was part of this affective resonance do, do you want to take a moment to, or two to speak about maybe how the book's been received and also what you're currently doing? Let me just talk a little. It's so interesting that um, books take a long time to actually appear, even that when they're published. I mean, if you, I think, um, you know, uh, Bonds of Love was, you know, a, a book that, that in some ways really came into its own some years after it had come out. So I think that we're slow as kind of readers. And um, so I'm hoping that the book will get some reviews. Um, I think that, um, you know, there's, it's just, maybe this podcast will be part of publicizing. And, I think uh, it will, it's, yes. It's, 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 um, I think it's, I, I think probably to the degree that it will begin to be used for courses it will start to have this um, little bit underground life. I think that probably some reviews would be a good thing as well. Definitely, it definitely yeah, deserves I, it. It's. Uh, uh, I think it, you know. I think it's been um, thought by a number of analysts who told me that they're interested in in using it as an opportunity to revisit all of his papers, and that some mm-hmm. of those they use for teaching, you know, certain articles from the book. So that's mm-hmm. been nice to hear. Yeah, as, as I've been discussing with people, and many people are familiar with the um, submission, masochism, masochism submission, surrender paper, yeah. but sometimes don't put together who he is, who he is and all the other yeah. stuff that he's yeah. d- done as well and, and all the things that we've been discussing. So I think the book will really, really help help with That's that. And I think, I, 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 think so. I, I can't imagine it not having some sort of long, long-standing mm-hmm. effect yeah. in, in the ways that you're mentioning. That's gonna, it could be used for teaching for sure. Any other upcoming projects? writing a discussion for an article for Psychoanalytic Dialogue. The article itself is about intergenerational transmission of trauma, 
And I will actually be using some of Manny's ideas to talk, some of his ideas of masochism and submission to talk about, because he talked about masochism and also like Ferenzi as also being a response to trauma. So I'll be integrating some of those ideas within my discussion. So one thing that occurs to me that I think is part of maybe a little bit of a complexity of um, this of the Gantt Project is that um, a lot of people's works come out during their lifetime. And, you know, Bromberg's collected papers, there are two or three of them now, they've come out over a sort of a 10 or 15 year period when he was, he is still alive and, and when he was working. And I think there's a, there's a complexity of, um, you know, I think the same sort of, uh, not quite as much attention to Mitchell's writing, um, because there's not a person, you know, continuing to, to sort of produce and give, give that work. So I think that's a, a complexity of publishing something where the person is not alive. So I'm hoping, uh, what I'm working on is trying to finish a book while I am still alive <laughs> and I've collected papers, on, some on gender and some on clinical process and definitely Manny's in, my, in the background of those, of those projects. Great, great. We'll look forward to it. Um, I, I wanted to thank you for, for doing this today. I, 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 it was great. So I did ask, guys. Yeah. <laughs> so this has been Chris, Christopher Bandini from New Books in Psychoanalysis. We've been speaking with Victoria Demos and Adrian Harris about the collected papers of Emmanuel Gant, Heart Melts Forward, and that's um, on Rutledge. So thanks again for uh, for talking today. Thank, thank you, you so much, Chris.